Good afternoon and welcome to the uh, webinar on liens, consent, and cram down motions in New York. Uh, this is a live question and answer session, so feel free to submit your questions on the right and we'll get to them at the end of the presentation. Uh, so let's get started with a general discussion on section 29, which is gonna pop up frequently in uh, these webinars. So section 29 is the statutory basis for our lien rights. Uh, it provides we have a lien on the proceeds of any recovery from such other. We call that third party generally in terms of workers' comp parlance. Uh, to the extent of the total amount of compensation awarded or provided or estimated by this chapter. And the reason I'm putting the actual phrasing is it's rather important when it comes to determining the necessity of our consent later on. Um, so this case, Matter of Granger v. Erda, uh, this one was subsequently overturned kind of by Section 29 1A. It's about the whole motor vehicle insurance carve out. I would refer you to the presentation on risk transfer for more about that. But um, the case is still cited to very frequently by courts today, even though it was overturned by Section 29 1A in a case called Matter of Dietrich versus Kemper. Uh, it's cited to because of this language about being the lien being inviolable against any recovery by a compensation claimant. And that comes up rather frequently nowadays, even still. So the consent requirement. This actually comes from section 29.5, subsection five of section 29. Um, provides that the compromise of any third party action for an amount less than the compensation provided for by this chapter, again, the wording is kind of important, uh, requires written approval. Um, both the obligation to obtain the consent and the burden of proof that it was actually obtained are on the claimant to produce. And practically this would be before the workers' compensation board if the carrier were to make an, uh, an application for suspension of benefits because uh, the settlement was obtained without the consent of the carrier. Uh, so note that the requirement is for written approval. So what are the consequences? I just briefly mentioned, mentioned that right now. Uh, requires either the carrier's consent or compromise order from the court where the third party action is pending. This is gonna be uh, one of the county Supreme Courts in New York. Uh, and if without the carrier's consent to settle or a compromise order, the claimant can forfeit the right to future workers' compensation benefits. Um, and the burden once again is on the claimant to prove the consent was obtained and that's gonna be a factual determination for the board. And just expanding on the consequences a little more, uh, a failure to, to obtain consent equals a forfeiture of any further benefits for which recovery might have been had in a third party action. So the general thinking is that if the carrier would have had a right of recovery or possibly future lien or offset rights, the fact that this case is being settled around them uh, affects their ability to fully recover under New York's subrogation statute. Um, consent or judicial approval is required within three months of settlement uh, or the claimant is barred from future workers' compensation benefits. So I mentioned earlier that language about the Section 29 lien being inviolable. Uh, the consent requirement is almost as inviolable as the lien itself. Uh, it must be obtained by the claimant affirmatively to preserve the right to continue receiving workers' comp benefits consent or the compromise order, and we're gonna get into that. Uh, an unauthorized settlement could jeopardize the carrier's right to recoup future benefits for which it may become liable. 
Uh, and this consent order or um, the consent itself, the compromise order consent itself, are required even when the settlement exceeds the benefits awarded because our ultimate liability could eventually exceed the total settlement amount. And yes, consent is required still in denied cases. Doesn't matter if it was a denied claim based on employer-employee relationship, uh, lack of coverage, uh, injury outside the course of employment, cited to a couple different cases there that address each of those specific fact patterns, but uh, yes, it does not matter that the carrier denied the case at the outset. Consent or a compromise order are still required. Uh, so this is why we were talking earlier about the extent of the benefits which may become payable under the workers' comp law and how that affects the requirement for consent or a compromise order. So this is, this is an odd one. It's kind of counter, counterintuitive. Uh, even if the carrier hasn't paid in excess of $50,000 at the time of the settlement in the motor vehicle accident case, consent is still required. Uh, I have the case listed there as Waters Part 2. There's a, a Waters versus City of New York decision from uh, 1998 from the third department. It actually bounced the case back to the board panel to determine a couple issues or to the workers' comp board, not the panel, to determine additional issues. And then it came back up to the third department, wouldn't you know it. But uh, the reason this is actually kind of important is even if the carrier would have no right of reimbursement in a motor vehicle accident case, you haven't paid in excess of 50,000, you've only paid 10K. Even if you would not have a right of reimbursement as the carrier in a motor vehicle accident case, your consent is still required because you might be on the hook for benefits in excess of 50K or for benefits that are not in lieu of first party benefits later on. Uh, consent or approval are still required even where the settlement constitutes 100% of the policy limits. Uh, this is an odd one and also sort of counterintuitive because you would think there's not much more money available. So why, why would the claimant settlement be inadequate to protect our rights? And again, it's all about the carrier being able to uh, prevent a double recovery, making sure that the future credit and offset rights are preserved, making sure they're payable the way they should be under the law or pursuant to a consent agreement. We're going to get into that. Doesn't matter that the claimant had a great trial and managed to get the policy limits, still need our consent. Um, consent might not be required if the settlement is clearly in excess of workers' comp benefits. And when I say clearly, there's a case out there and a couple additional ones uh, case is called McComber. Uh, it's a $14.5 million third-party settlement, uh, and they asked the, the claimant was getting uh, permanent disability benefits for life, but they estimated the present value of it at about 350000 I believe. There was no way workers' comp benefits were ever going to approach the $14.5 million. So in a really egregious, extraneous circumstance, an outlier like that, uh, the consent might not be required, but by and large it is. And I cited to a case here, Fidelity and Guarantee, uh, Guarantee Insurance Company versus DiGiacomo, uh, just because I like this language, any settlement is potentially less than the benefits provided by the workers' compensation law. Uh, carriers know that all too well. Uh, potentially less than the benefits provided by the workers' compensation law? Well, yeah, because they provide for an awful lot of benefits, don't they? Uh, especially where, as here, the claimant is seeking a permanent partial disability classification from the workers' comp board, which could mean that he would be entitled to benefits indefinitely. 
So the reason I cited to this, and I mentioned it earlier, is uh, it's important that speculative benefits, benefits which are not payable as of the time of the settlement, are factored in in this consent or compromise order requirement. If the exposure might exceed what's provided for by the workers' comp law, you still need the consent or compromise. And what does that mean practically? Again, unless it's a crazy third-party settlement, you're going to need our consent or a compromise order from the court. So let's get into some other consent issues, just some extraneous uh, topics hanging around. So uh, consent can be implied in some instances. If the workers' comp carrier is the same as the third-party liability carrier, this depends on facts and board findings. Uh, the cases out there, you know, the uh, carrier took an active role in both cases, you know, it was the same attorney on both fronts. Uh, there were stipulations made before the board that the carrier was aware of the settlement or the, that the carrier wasn't consenting, or uh, it really depends on factual determinations and the extent of the crossover. But if you have the same carrier across both the third party action, they're the defendant carrier, or the workers' compensation claim, consent can be implied, but again, it really depends. Um, there have previously been findings, uh, and when I say previously, I mean, you know, the cases out there from the 1940s, uh, that oral consent can be found based on the facts. Uh, but if you look at all the recent decisions, uh, formal written consent is almost always required. Uh, and the requirement for consent or compromise order includes voluntary abandonment or discontinuance of a third party action. So if uh, the claimant decides, you know what, I'm spinning my tires in the mud, this case is going nowhere, I'm just going to stick to discontinue it. Even if that discontinuance is without prejudice, we have a right to pick up the ball and continue carrying it forward. And that is considered a compromise that would require either an order from the court or our consent. So this is a good place to interject the importance of a good consent agreement. Uh, this is something uh, me and uh, Christian Cson here have talked about quite frequently on his Third Friday podcast series. Uh, weaponize the consent agreement. I mean, New York has this requirement for carriers or for claimants, rather. And this is kind of our secret sauce. This is our this is our weapon. We can really make things work to our benefit here, and I'm going to go over just quite how that works. Um, so there's this case out there, Matter of Stenson versus New York State Department of Transportation. Parties can negotiate, agree to, and memorialize essential terms. Now what that means is you can specify how the benefits are to be paid, uh, and that means you can waive your future share of litigation costs if it's worded correctly. Um, so the reason this really sticks out is because absent any sort of agreement to the contrary, uh, you're dealing with the Kelly and Burns cases. You're either dealing with the present value of not speculative future benefits or ongoing payments at the so-called Burns rate, right? You can actually agree, pursuant to matter of Stenson, to set a dollar-for-dollar dollar offset and say the carrier is not liable for uh, its equitable share of future litigation costs on ongoing payments. Just note that... Um, some recent cases have made this a little more difficult. Uh, we're not recommending that you reserve burns anymore. Uh, there's a case, Matter of Terranova versus Lear Construction Co. Um, essentially, if you burn says that the carrier is responsible for its ongoing share of litigation costs, uh, and that includes carrying the credit forward. So if you reserve burns, even if you say dollar for dollar later on, 
the re reservation of burns rights is going to shoot you in the foot. Uh, so we're actually um, nowadays the better practice is to have the claimant waive burns and Kelly rights if uh, if they and their attorneys are willing to. Um, you have to be careful in the consent letter to reserve all of your future rights. A future offset is waived if not explicitly reserved. This is the case Burson versus County of Onondaga, and it is rigidly enforced. The claimant is supposed to have all of the facts on the table when they settle their case. And when I say all the facts on the table, uh, that includes the extent of the future credit and offset. The idea is that they want this knowledge at the time of their settlement, or else it might impact their decision to accept the settlement. So have to be explicit about that reservation of rights. Uh, Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service. Again, another one that uh, Christian Cezanne and I have discussed time and time again. You can decide when your credit applies. Uh, so why is this noteworthy? Well, if you're negotiating a global settlement, this is your best friend. Um, it is the one situation outside of a full and final section 32 settlement agreement where the claimant can agree to uh, waive uh, workers' compensation benefits. And it can't be phrased as a waiver. It's a temporary suspension pending approval of the section 32. Um, or you can agree to start the burns rate as the uh, issuance of the consent agreement. But the reason this is so noteworthy is you can freeze the section 29 lien, essentially. If you have a, a global settlement pending where there's a section 32 coming funded by a waiver of the section 29 lien, you might think to yourself, if we're making ongoing payments, suddenly what we're waiving is worth more than it was when we agreed to the section 32. Well, thanks to a matter of Williams versus Lloyd Gunther Elevator Service, your consent agreement can, uh, you know, quote unquote, finalize the amount of your section 29 lien pending that 32 settlement. So let's get into the cram down motion. So this is uh, the consent or a compromise order rather referenced earlier under section 29.5. This is gonna come from the third party, uh, the court where the third party action is pending, the Supreme Court, the trial court. Um, the requirement for consent or a compromise order are an either or. There is no requirement to seek the carrier consent first. In other words, the claimant can go right for the compromise order. I don't know why they would. It's extra litigation costs as opposed to just making a phone call, but there's just a case out there addressing it. Um, judicial approval can be sought retroactively, meaning after the settlement. That's called a non-pro-tunk motion. You may hear called NPT motions by third-party attorneys. Uh, and whether to approve this petition is within the discretion of the trial court, usually the Supreme County Court where the case is pending. So, Section 29.5 actually specifically describes how the motion for the compromise order is to be made. There are individual components to it uh, and specific requirements. There's the petition that has to be prepared, an attorney affidavit, a physician affidavit, uh, the petition has to have the claimant's name and address, description of the accident, nature and extent of the damages, that includes treatment, list of the treating providers, uh, the periods of disability, the total amount of lost wages. Uh, you need to have the terms of the attorney retainer agreement. You need to have whether there was this request for uh, approval of the settlement. Uh, the attorney affidavit needs to have why the settlement is being recommended. And again, a detailed statement of the retainer. The physician affidavit has to have, you know, when they treated the claimant, uh, whether there was permanency, what the person's present status is, what the periods of treatment were, 
etc. So there are a lot of actual requirements. Um, it actually has to be served on the carrier uh, either as directed by the court or pursuant to the CPLR rules for a notice of motion. Uh, it has to give the carrier uh, enough time to file uh, affidavits or answering papers. Uh, so you're looking at uh, notice of motion has to be at least eight days uh, before the return date so that your reply papers would be two day, due two days before the return date. Um, any defects in the motion method, the petition that we just described or the affidavit submitted with it, uh, are a basis to object to approval. So uh, these, aren't, uh, these aren't a sure thing. You know, sometimes these third-party attorneys will fire off the petition and it'll be largely deficient in a number of ways and that's an easy request to shoot down. Uh, statute provides that approval must be sought within three months after the date of settlement However, and I reference this case, Amasio v. State, uh, first department case from 2015, it has a nice recitation of how the whole NPT motion and outside of the time works. Of course, we're gonna give them another bite at the apple here, because why not? Uh, can still seek, you can still seek uh, the approval of the compromise order more than three months after the settlement if the settlement amount is reasonable, delay is not caused by the petitioner's fault or neglect, and the carrier was not prejudiced by the delay. Uh, the three-month statutory limit doesn't apply when settlement's not ent entered into during the pendency of a third-party action. That only makes sense um, if you're going to uh, send medical records off to the third-party carrier and they tend to re the policy limits right out of the gate. Uh, there's not really a third-party case or Supreme Court action to even try and file this in. Um, Approval does not mean we lose our rights, and we're going to get into some recent case studies on that uh, just very briefly, but uh, this is important. Just because the compromise order is being approved doesn't mean that our rights are at all extinguished or compromised. It's the same as if we had done the consent agreement, just maybe we don't get to memorialize the terms on how we would like to do them. So these are the case studies I referenced, uh, Batista versus Dong Zhu Wu. The two cases we're going to talk about are from uh, 2018. This is a Bronx County Supreme Court case. Claimant sought approval of the settlement and uh, nullification slash reduction of the lien. And uh, I love this language from the court here. This court is without authority to further reduce the lien, or in other words, to strike, waive, or reduce any portion of the lien beyond its share of the litigation expenses, including attorney fees, so that plaintiff could recover more. So in this case, uh, they tried to go for the standard uh, third, a third, a third. Every carrier or adjuster has heard of that before. They tried to say that this is customary, this is what should be approved. Uh, the fact that the carrier wasn't going to reduce it even more meant they were you know, participating in frivolous conduct and uh, things of that nature. Uh, and the court was having none of it. Uh, beyond just setting the cost of litigation rate uh, per Section 29 in Kelly, they couldn't unilaterally reduce the lien. There's no right to that in a compromise order. So now we have Estevez versus Public Defender Trust. This is a uh, this is a 2018 Westchester County Supreme Court case. Uh, this discusses the inviolable and irreducible nature of the workers' compensation lien. And as you um, might recall, uh, I referenced earlier that that whole uh, inviolable language about the lien from uh, Matter of Granger v. Erda is still referenced today. This is one example of that. 
Um, so it does to give a brief discussion on lien priority. Uh, you know, first the attorneys get paid, then the workers' comp carrier, then child support. There's this case, Daniels versus Monroe County Child Support Collection Unit. Um, so that talks about how the lien is so important it even supersedes child support. Uh, again, language that we really love. No previous case has been found by this court directly holding that the rules and limitations applicable to equitable subrogation rights are inapplicable to the Section 29 lien. This court now so holds, concluding the workers' compensation carrier is entitled to insert the entirety of its lien without interference or enforced compromise order of this court. Uh, and then they hold that the made whole rule that the claimant tried to argue does not, for equitable subrogation, does not apply to a workers' comp lien. So just to discuss this briefly, uh, this is a case where the amount of workers' compensation benefits so far exceeded the third-party settlement. I believe the carrier offered to pay $10,000 just so that something would be going to the claimant. Claimant tried to compel the settlement and, and reduce the lien, arguing this made whole doctrine. And what that says, it's for the concept of equitable subrogation. And essentially, if the uh, person's damages exceed the amount recovered, then what can be subrogated is only, you know, what is in excess of uh, the person's actual damages. And this does not apply to uh, the workers' compensation lien under Section 29. The made whole doctrine might apply to equitable subrogation, which is a construct of uh, common law and not really of statute, but it doesn't apply to the Section 29 lien. So this is another case where they just sought to unilaterally reduce the carrier's lien when uh, the carrier wasn't really bending on compromise. And the court, uh, even though they were going to go for the compromise order, uh, the court said that they were unable to fix the extent of our lien. So just something to keep in mind. Again, the compromise order does not affect our lien rights. So finally, uh, just want to briefly bring up the overlap with New Jersey here. Uh, there is no analogous consent requirement in New Jersey for Section 40 liens. Obviously, they can't unilaterally reduce it. Uh, there's going to be a uh, call for a reduction of the lien or some sort of compromise, depending on the amount of the third-party settlement. They can't just fix what you're going to get in return. Uh, it doesn't mean that the carrier is completely powerless in New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey permits a lien on underinsured motorists and uninsured motorist benefits, which New York does not. Uh, and it even says that uh, policies cannot reduce amounts payable to the workers' comp carrier, so there can't be specifications in UM or UIM benefit policies saying that uh, the Section 29 lien is to be reduced or extinguished, or I'm sorry, Section 40 lien is to be reduced or extinguished. That is a void against public policy. Uh, New Jersey doesn't have the made whole doctrine either for Section 40 liens. Uh, that's Frazier versus New Jersey Manufacturers Co. So that argument's not going to fly in New Jersey either. Uh, and the lien calculation and future credit and offset rights are somewhat more friendly. Um, there's no such thing as a third, a third, a third still. Uh, and we hear that all the time. And uh, Lois Law Firm never recommends accepting a third, a third, a third. That's just not how the law works. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, but in New Jersey, future benefits are going to be paid at a flat one-third rate going forward, uh, and the maximum that comes off for uh, cost of litigation is $750 for expenses of suit and one-third for the attorney's fee. So uh, that's going to do it for this substantive part of the presentation. Let's just see if we have any questions before we wrap up here.
and I do not see any questions. So uh, that's going to do it for me. Uh, thank you very much for joining. Uh, this is Chris Major with Lois Law Firm signing off on the third edition of the Major Mondays webinar. Thanks again for attending.